Welcome to part one of the Clutter Family Murders. In this episode, we're going to dig deep into the family tree of Richard Eugene Hickok. Then come back in two weeks when we discuss his partner in crime, Perry Edward Smith. Welcome to Murderous Roots, a podcast that explores the family history of notorious killers. I'm Denise and with me is Zelda. Now, let's get started. Welcome back to Murderous Roots. Hi, Zelda. Hey, Denise. How are you this week? I'm pretty good. Um, We are right now quarantining a bit more than usual, though. Oh, yeah. Same here in Chicago. It's a lockdown. We're not, there's nothing open and nowhere to go. Um, Which, I mean, honestly, I wasn't really going anywhere doing anything anyway. So, you know, my life has changed absolutely not at all. Well, one of our girl's playmates, her mom is a nurse at a local hospital, and she ended up down with the virus. Oh, no. And she didn't know when she got exposed. And the odds are in our favor, because it had been almost a week since the girls had played with her. Mm-hmm. But to be on the safe side, we went and got ourselves tested. We still don't have our test results. So we're just being overly cautious to make sure that if we were exposed, we're not exposing anybody else. That's really smart. Because, I mean, this spreads so easily. So Mm -hmm. good on you for being civically responsible. Yeah, I was at a loss what to do because it's like, well, so it was just conversations with her and like, when do you know when you're exposed? And she's like, no. She goes, I always wear my PPE. I have no idea when I got it. And I'm like, that's cool. I just wanted to know. So if we, if you sat there and said, oh, it was such and such a day that was after our girls played with mm-hmm. the daughter then. But since she didn't know, I'm like, we'll take precautions and make sure we're good. So we got to sit in a drive through line for two hours. Oh, my God. With three girls, age five, eight, and nine. Did any of them have to go pee? Because no, that's what I would have worried about. Luckily, but they don't. The two youngest still have not grasped onto what inside voices are. (laughs) I was ready to lose my mind by the time we were done. Oh, my God. (laughs) And so the girls got tested, too, then? Yes. Okay. So now I'm checking the testing site every other minute just to go, is it up yet? Is it up? Mm -hmm. But they said they're running behind because they're getting so many. So the day I went, there was over a thousand people who went through. Oh my gosh. And to understand this, I mean, for people who are listening, I don't live in Chicago. I live about two hours South and our County is only about 180,000 people. So that's a a large portion of people going to get tested in one day. Mm -hmm. So, Oh yeah. You know, I think there's 180,000 people in my neighborhood here in Chicago. Probably. Yeah. Yeah. I looked it up once because it amazed me that the cities, this, my neighborhood here has more people than many cities I've lived in. Yeah. I get that. Kind of blows my brain. It was kind of like, um, having been from St. Louis, you'll hear people going, Oh, they're from the small town of Bridgeton. And I'll laugh hysterically because Bridgeton itself. Yeah. Not very big, but it's right in the middle of St. Louis County. And basically, they don't count it as St. Louis City. I mean, it's not St. Louis proper, although at this point it probably should be, but that's a whole neither here nor there. But do you remember from living in St. Louis referring to 
cities, you know, the suburbs as the county. Like, I'm going to go shopping in the county this weekend. Well, apparently that's an ingrained habit with me. Because even though I live in Chicago (laughs) now, and I want to go to, like, Naperville, I'm like, hey, I'm going out to the county. And all my friends are like, the fuck? What? You know, it's like, oh, you don't do that here. And I'm like, I haven't even lived in St. Louis for probably, God, 20 years now. Yeah. Well, and then it's a specific type of part of the county, too. Uh So I'm going to go to South County. Oh, yeah. I'm going to go to West County. You know, you're Uh very specific. Now, I lived in St. Charles, so I was outside. So anytime we were going to St. Louis, that's what we said. We weren't so much going to the county, but when some people said it, we knew it. Right. Right. It was so funny. So many little quirks about Missouri. Yeah. And and St. Louis's biggest thing is, and you always know you run into somebody from St. Louis when they ask you the following question. So what high school did you go to? Mm-hmm. Yeah. That tells us everything we need to know about where that person grew up. Yep. <laughs> and sadly, it really does give you a lot of information because the way St. Louis mm-hmm. is set up, it's very siloed. So yes. you know a lot about a person about depending on what high school they went. Right. Well, hey, I think it's interesting we're going very literary this week. We are. And you know what? I pulled out the book, the book that started this all out, partly to look and see if there was more research I could garner from it really quick. And I know I need to read it one of these days. And one of these days when my kids aren't in the house all the time, I might. Well, I've never read it either. So don't feel too bad. And one time when the movie came out a few years ago, I asked my dad, have you ever read any of this author's works? And my, I will never forget my dad saying, no, I always just thought he was such a strange little man. Well, that does sum it up for Truman Capote. <laughs> <laughs> he is a strange little man, but I did see the original, the movie uh-huh. uh, for In Cold Blood uh-huh. from years ago. And there was another accused murderer in that movie. Yes. <laughs> and Robert, I need to look this up really quick. Natalie Wood's husband, right? No, no, oh. no. Robert Blake. Oh. <gasps> I forgot about that. Robert Blake played Perry Smith. Oddly appropriate. Mm-hmm. And, the, and there's another actor. You probably won't recognize his name, but if you look at his face, you'll go, oh my gosh, I know him. Scott Wilson played, who we're going to be covering today, Richard Hickok. Or Dick Hickok. Boy, that's... He definitely that's... earned the name Dick, didn't he? Yeah, I would say so. He had some um issues. Yeah, that's putting it mildly. Yeah. So why don't we get started, unless you have something else to add before we begin? Well, nothing at all. Um, so Dick was born on June 6th, 1931 in Kansas City, Kansas, to farm worker parents, Walter and Eunice Hickok. Now, what's interesting is the word, first of all, say Dick Hickok 10 times fast. Yeah, it's hard. And that's going to kill you. Um, but the spelling of Hickok um, is a little is can be variant and right. so it actually took me a little bit to find the right Richard Hickok when we started <laughs> researching this anyway he was one of several siblings including a brother named Walter Jr. now we know about Walter Jr. a little bit more because he was very willing to give interviews mm-hmm. as opposed to a lot of the rest of the family right um, but you know according to him their parents provided with a good upbringing they were a bit strict but basically a fairly normal family um, in 1947 the Hickok family relocated to the east kansas town of edgerton and you know 
Oddly, Hickok was a really popular student and an athlete at Olathe High School. So, you know, he just seemed like a normal kid for the most part. And he wanted to go to college, but of course his parents being farm workers, that's not really in the cards back in the 1950s. So he got his first job at the age of 16 at the Santa Fe Railroad Company. Tragedy struck for him in 1950. Um, He was 19 years old and he was in a terrible car accident that actually caused substantial brain injury and it left his face disfigured. And according to his brother Walter, the accident almost killed him and it really changed him. Right. So there was a definite personality shift and attitude shift after that accident. Mm-hmm. And um, of course, after being released from hospital, the hospital, uh, Dick was left with hospital bills and lots of debts. And then he started having some really bad financial habits. Um, he started writing bad checks. He started gambling. And then he started just kind of drifting through jobs. So he left his railroad job, then became a mechanic, and then an ambulance driver and a mechanic. And he was continuing to write bad checks and he was doing some petty theft at the time so at that same year when he was 19 he married carol bryan who was 16 at the time yes which even in the 50s that's a little young um they had uh three sons he took a job as a mechanic at the mark buick company so he's a buick mechanic that's nice But of course he strayed because again, big personality shift and he got his mistress pregnant and then he divorced his wife and married the mistress. So, (laughs) and he kept up with the criming and eventually uh, he got arrested in January of 1956. He received a prison sentence for five years. He started serving his prison sentence in March 1958, and it was for burglary for stealing a rifle from someone's home. So that's kind of like, wow, he got five years for it. But of course, you know, he was paroled out early. During this sentence, his second wife also divorced him. So here he is, 26, married twice, divorced twice. While he's serving this prison sentence, though, this is where we have the unholy triad appear. So during this sentence, he actually met the two people that greatly influenced the crimes that are about to happen, Perry Smith and Floyd Wells. Now, Floyd Wells used to work for this farm family called the Clutter family, and Wells was just talking big about the affluence and the influence of the family's patriarch, Herbert Clutter, specifically telling Hickok that Clutter kept a safe in his house containing $10,000. And of course, Hickok and Smith thought that was the best thing they'd ever heard. Right. So they devised a plan to rob and murder the Clutter family and then go live the rest of their lives in Mexico. Hickok was released from prison in August 1959 after serving 17 months. He was released. He got a job at a body shop in Olathe, Kansas. And for a little while, a couple of weeks, he tried to live an upright life. But he quickly contacted Smith because this whole working for a living just wasn't doing it for him, apparently. So they met up and they collected supplies to aid in the commission of the crimes. And it turns out one of the things that was mentioned was that Dick was apparently quite excited about the fact Clutter had a teenage daughter. And from the get-go, he had planned to rape her. Mm. Let's move to a little bit about the Clutter family. Uh, The patriarch's name was Herbert, or Herb Clutter, and he was a prosperous farmer in western Kansas. His two elder daughters, Ivana and Beverly, had moved out, and they were... 
thankfully out of the house that night or God knows, right? right. Um, his two younger children, Nancy was 16 and Kenyon, age 15, they were high school students. On the evening of November 14, 1959, Hickok and Smith drove across the state of Kansas, like more than 400 miles, and decided they decided drive. this is when yeah it's a long drive especially back then right I mean, that was hours and hours of driving because they were going to you know do the deed that night they finally arrived in the early morning hours of november 15th they got to holcomb they located the clutter home and entered through an unlocked door while the family slept now unlocked doors i mean i don't know if you've lived in small enough communities but that's kind of a thing right um perhaps not as much anymore but um, I know several places I've lived where I didn't worry about locking doors. Obviously, living in Chicago, I locked down everything. But <laughs> <laughs> they woke up the clutters, and that's when they found there was no safe. Mm. That had all been made up. And in fact, Herb Clutter was known around town as never really carrying a lot of cash on him. And he wrote checks for everything. So literally, all they found was $40 and a small portable radio and yes. a pair of binoculars. Right? And anyway, they had, they bound and gagged the family, obviously went through the whole house looking for something. And then they're like, well, we probably shouldn't leave witnesses. And so they're debating, what do we do about this? And uh, Smith, who apparently was rather unstable and prone to violent acts in fits of rage, slit Herb Clutter's throat and then shot him in the head. Wow. And then he said... I didn't want to harm the man. I thought he was a very nice gentleman, soft-spoken. I thought so right up to the moment I cut his throat. Ugh. I'm like, seriously, what the hell? Talk um, about overkill. Exactly. And then, of course, Hickok had been looking forward to raping the 16-year-old girl. And apparently Smith was, okay, that's a little too far. What? So he, I know, right? I and mean, so he I, got, I'm not saying he should have raped her or anything like that or encouraged that. But how is that? uh -huh. I'm right. at, I'm at a loss exactly. for words. <laughs> exactly. So Smith told Hickok, if you step one foot, if you, you know, if you get anywhere near her, I'll kill you. So they're having an argument over that. And anyway, at the end of all of it, they shot everybody. Um, Kenyon, Nancy, and Bonnie were all murdered, each by a single shotgun blast to the head. So they took off. And the reason the bodies were discovered the next day so very quickly is that this was a church-going family. And when they didn't go to church that Sunday, because this happened Saturday night into Sunday morning, right. the neighbors who were used to seeing them at church went by the house to make sure everything was okay. And of course, it was so not okay. Well, and did you realize what today is? <gasps> I did not. It's the 61st. Yes, sixty-first anniversary of the murders being discovered. I did not realize that. Mm -hmm. Oh my gosh, we're doing it on the perfect day, then, aren't we? Yes, we are honoring oh. the Clutter family. Oh my gosh, and I'm assuming that you know the two oldest daughters may even still be alive. Anyway, fast forwarding a little bit. So the murders were investigated by the Kansas Bureau of Inspection, and originally the investigation led nowhere. Now, this is something we've seen before in other murders, you mm -hmm. may recall. Wells, Floyd Wells, who had told them about the clutters in the first place, told a warden at the Kansas State Penitentiary. I can't say penitentiary for the life of me. You just did. Uh, oh, yay. Okay, I'm going to try it again. <laughs> Wells told a warden at the Kansas State Penitentiary about Hickok and Smith and how they planned to rob the clutters. Again, it's always the person who's left behind who rats you out. Right. Remember to pay off your people because otherwise 
they're always going to rat you out. Well, that's true. And now in in the book, In Cold Blood, because I was skimming through it, Floyd Wells said that he didn't want them to do it. And he, when he heard them planning it, he told them, no, don't do that. They're nice people. Yeah. Yeah, because Floyd Wells was not a sociopath, apparently. Apparently not. Just more of your kind of garden variety criminal. Yeah. Agent Harold Nye of the KBI visited Hickok's parents in Olathe, Kansas. And the reason they did that was because after the murder, Hickok, like, went to their house, was there for a few days. He left the shotgun that was used in the massacre in his old room. He told his parents it was for rabbit hunting. <laughs> yeah. And then they traveled across the country, including to Florida. That'll become significant a little bit later. Yes. On December 30th, the two killers were arrested in Las Vegas, Nevada, and brought back to Kansas. Interestingly enough, that was December 30th, 1959. So when they were interrogated, they both gave contradictory confessions, and it was never firmly established exactly who killed who. So at first, Smith claimed he had killed both Herb and Kenyon, and that Hickok killed the women. Hickok, on the other hand, claimed that Smith was the one who killed all four family members. And then Smith later changed his confession because he felt sorry for Dick's mom because she was such a sweet person and claimed that he did indeed kill all of the clutters. But neither one of them testified in court. So there's no official testimony of who killed the women. Both were found guilty and sentenced to death. During their time on death row in Lansing, Kansas, Hickok and Smith were interviewed extensively by author Truman Capote, who was doing research about the case after reading about it in the media. Mm -hmm. um, he also became a good friend of Smith, and there are rumors that their relationship may even have been sexual, although there's no proof that that actually happened. Oh. Just speculation. The resulting book, In Cold Blood, became an international bestseller and is regarded as a pioneering work in the true crime genre. And Hickok and Smith were both executed by hanging just after midnight on April 14th, 1965. Now, remember how I had mentioned Florida, that, right. you know, in between the killings in November, they had gone to Florida. Well, on December 19th in Florida, the Walker family was killed. And um, authorities in Osprey, Florida, suspected that they were responsible for the Walker family murders. It happened almost a month to the day after the Clutter family murders. And they were actually seen in Florida between Tallahassee and Miami. Um, so there was a lot of circumstantial evidence that this could have been them. Recently, I want to say it was in 2017, they obtained some DNA to see if they could do a DNA match. But unfortunately, yeah. the DNA was too degraded and they couldn't oh. conclusively, but they still remain uh, the top suspects. Wow. So that is the story of the Smith and Hickok murders. And we'll revisit it again next week as well when we get to Perry Smith. But today we're talking about Richard Eugene Hickok, as you mentioned. I can't seem to call him Dick most of the time. Really? Because it comes so easily to me. The well, Dick. I know. I just, it's, I, I, when I'm doing my research, he's not listed as Dick. Mm -hmm. It's always Richard. So that's what I begin to think of them as by their name. Mm -hmm. You covered a good portion of what I had. I was going to mention a couple of things, though. His wife, Carol, her last name is not Brady. Oh, what is it? Now, everybody else has Brady, and I don't know if she used it as um, a different name to protect herself. So I don't know. I 
don't know if she's alive or not. Okay. Odds are she might not be, but she was born around 1938, I think. So there's a good chance that she's still alive. So I don't want to do that. But I can tell you that her father was a minister named Delbert and her mother was named Sue. Ah. No, she wasn't born around 1940. That was his second wife. She was born in 1935. Okay. And actually, by my calculations, based on when they got married, yeah, she could have been 16, but... She could have been easily 15 as well. Oh, so ew. the problem I have with researching Kansas is they don't have as many records online as I would love to have. Mm-hmm. Keeping that in mind, I'm a little limited. However, I did find some newspapers that helped me with my research. And that's how I know her last name was not Brady. Because I saw a mention of her with her parents and her parents' names. And that gave it away. Richard and Carol had three sons together. I believe they are all still living. So no names. Okay. And while he was, the, I believe it was while Carol was pregnant with the third one, he was having the affair with Margaret Edna Cowan. I found this fascinating. So he has this affair with Margaret Cowan. He and Carol divorced in April 1957. It's posted in the newspaper that it had been finalized. She gives birth to their youngest son a couple weeks later in May 1957. Now in the Ottawa Herald, the newspaper out of Kansas, there is a snippet mentioning that Carol intended a birthday party for her husband and his brother in June 1957. And I found that very fascinating. And maybe they attended because she wanted to bring his sons so that they could be there to celebrate birthday with dad. I don't know. But in the paper, they must not know they're divorced because they keep saying, oh, his wife, Carol, was there type of thing. Mm. But in July that year, she did visit his parents with the grandkids by herself. And you start seeing that separation. He married Margaret in October that year around that time and she had they had a daughter in september 1958 now according to the list of divorces in the kansas city times margaret filed for divorce in march 1958 so they weren't even married a year wow. this is while dick is in prison the divorce is finalized in october 1958 so about their anniversary what i did find fascinating and i don't know if it's because there was an automatic renewal i don't know how that worked back then but i was looking at the city directories and there's richard and this is in 1958 and it lists him as being with his wife carol still even huh. though they were long divorced mm-hmm. and actually this might have been 1959 i forgot to mention the date right marked down the date and funny enough she's listed as mrs carol hickok living on her own her listings right next to his mm-hmm. Now, she did remarry, I believe. Oh, good on her. I'm glad. And I believe the sons are still alive, so I I don't want to, you know. Out them. Right. Now, we're going to get started with his parents and go through all that. We'll start with the paternal line, the Hickok line. And it's an interesting one. And unlike last time when we really got knee deep and I'm like, oh, I have these themes. There's not as many themes with this family. His father was Walter Samuel Hickok. He was born in February 1901 in one of my favorite places in the whole world, Lawrence, Kansas. (laughs) Yes, I'm a Jayhawk. That's where they are. Okay. He started out working as a carpenter. Then by 1930, he owned and ran an auto garage and worked as a mechanic. He married Eunice Hutzel around 1929, likely in Kansas. And that's probably why I can't find the marriage record. Because if it was in Missouri, I would have found it. (laughs) They had two sons, Richard and Walter David. Now, I know the Wikipedia page says that he had several siblings. I don't know who those are because I found no mention of any other siblings in the census. 
No mention of any other siblings in newspaper reports or newspaper articles even before the events. Interesting. Yeah, because it says they had three sons. So it would be Dick and Walter and then this mysterious third son. But yeah. Unless they got mixed up with, with the fact that Richard had three sons. Right. That's entirely possible, too. So I don't know. But I do know, you know, he had his brother, Walter David, and Walter went by David, okay. probably because his father was Walter. Dick's father died not long after his son's conviction in June 1960. Now, I'm going to mention David, his brother. He was born in May 1937 and was six years younger than Dick. And he wrote, he kind of wrote a book about his brother and the experience after his brother's conviction and death. Wait, what, what, the, was, what was his name again? Walter David Hickok. Okay, sorry. When you said David instead of Walter, I got confused. Okay, I'm good. Right. I'm back Sorry. now. He went by David, not Walter, because his father was a Walter. Okay. With the help of the author, Dr. Linda Labert Carbello, he wrote this book. It's called In the Shadow of My Brother's Cold Blood. But he died two years before the book was published in 2010. He shared his story with author Labert Carbello, and this is what she said, is that initially he wanted me to prove his brother was innocent. But after I started getting all the articles and information about the murders, I asked him if he still thought his brother was innocent. He said no, put his head down, and cried. Hickok could not come to terms with the killings, what drove his brother and why his family had been made to suffer for his brother's past. He also carried the guilt of having purchased the shotgun used in the slayings. Wow. Yeah. But I can't imagine living with a sibling who's committed a huge crime like that and it captivated the nation. Everybody knows it. Then this book comes out and now everybody in the world knows about it. Uh -huh. And you have the same last name and your name was probably in the paper at some point about it. Uh -huh. You can't escape. Well, and I mean, it seems like the siblings of all of these people that we've been investigating, uh -huh. I mean, even when they try to keep their head low, they really have to change their names in order yeah. to be able to do that and hold, and even just to get hired to do jobs because obviously it makes people look at, at look at you askance if one of your relatives is a cold-blooded murderer right and even though you might have nothing to do with it it's not necessarily in the blood as mm -hmm. we've even discovered in doing this just because a person does it doesn't mean it's like a whole line of murderers mm -hmm. we've seen some instances where there's been problems but not mm -hmm. not enough to go oh there's a pattern mm-hmm well, we're going to go to Richard's grandfather, father of Walter Samuel Hickok, and his name was Frank Edward, and he was born in Kansas in February 1869, and he grew up in Kansas City, Kansas with six, his six siblings. They moved to Douglas County, which is where Lawrence, Kansas is, it's to the west, southwest of Kansas City, um, and they lived in Clinton, Kansas. Now, Clinton is a small town that sits along Clinton Lake. The lake is not very far from Lawrence. It was my favorite thinking spot when I was in college. If I needed to go downtime, I would go out and just spend some time at the lake. I even went to the beach, and I'm putting it in quotes because if you've been to Florida or anything, this is not really a beach, but <laughs> it worked for my purposes. <laughs> but anyhow, the town actually sits where the beach is. It's like in this peninsula that's surrounded by the lake. So it's a really small community. But Frank married a Swiss immigrant by the name of Maria Magdalena Barbin, and she was called Madeline. And I found their wedding announcement, which you love. He married her in August 1892, and I found the following in the Lawrence Weekly World on the 11th of August. Saturday evening, Frank Hickok and Miss Madeline Barbin, both well-known young people of Siegel, came to Lawrence and were quietly married. After the ceremony, they drove to the residence of Mrs. George Taylor's, 
where they were received by dozens of their friends from both city and country. The house was richly attired in the glorious collection of flowers. A splendid supper was served, and afterwards dancing was enjoyed by many of those present. Monday, the happy couple went to Kansas City, where they will reside. Oh, that's lovely. Yeah. And then I had a whole list of all the gifts they were given. Oh, my goodness. So I'm not sharing that here, but I'll probably put it on the website because that's always kind of fun to look at. Oh, yeah. Now, Frank worked as a farmer in Douglas County. By 1905, they had moved to Kansas City. Now, it said in the wedding announcement they were moving to Kansas City. They weren't there very long because by the 1900 census, they're back in Douglas County where he's working as a farmer. But once they made the move to Kansas City in 1905, and this is one of the good things about Kansas records, is they have their own state census, and they even have some county censuses every 10 years, but it was in between the U.S. census. So the U.S. census would be 1900. The state census or county census was 1905. Okay. So it, it filled in a lot of gaps, especially since I didn't have an 1890 census to work on. But he started, he started working as a carpenter once he was in Kansas City. They had five children, including Walter, who was their fourth. Frank died in 1945, age 76. Now, I want to talk about some of Walter Samuel's siblings. These are Richard's uncles. Frank Roy was the oldest, born in 1894 in Lawrence, and he married Edith Gertrude around 1914 and had at least two children, Louis and Esther, and he was a jeweler. And his son, Louis, who was born in 1916, followed in his father's line of work, and became a jeweler. I found the following in the Kansas City Star on June 2nd, 1970. The author was James J. Fisher. The loss in the robbery yesterday of Jacquard's jewelry store on the Country Club Plaza should amount to more than $200,000, police said last night. Bandits, directed by a man clad in navy blues and wearing sunglasses, emptied 11 jewelry cases of watches and rings. Cash in a drawer at the store was ignored and the bandits did not open a safe containing a large amount of currency. Three of the men entered, at least two of them carrying revolvers. Witness said, witnesses said those men were between 25 and 30 years old. A fourth man in his early 20s stood watch outside the main door at Jacquard's. Uh, Lewis Hickok, a jeweler at the store, and Russell Steiger, manager, were tied up by the robbers and four employees, and seven customers were herded into a corner near the jeweler's cage and watched by one of the men. The robbers used 38-inch long pieces of plastic clothesline to tie Hickok and Steiger. One of the women employees at the store attempted to get the alarm switch when the bandits entered the store, but one of the men grabbed her. They apparently knew what they were doing, um, Major Sterling Ford, chief of detectives, said. No one was injured during the robbery, and the robbers, except for brandishing pistols, were fairly polite to employees and customers. Wow. Oh, my so, gosh. So this is uh, Dick's first cousin who ends up becoming a victim of a major crime. Wow. Wow. Did they ever find, do you know, did they find out who did it and bring them to justice or? I don't, I could not find any more information on it, but I could dig later and see if I can. I'm just curious. Another of his uncles was Albert W. or Bert, as he was called. And he was born in January, 1896. And they go on a family trip to Western Kansas, where apparently poor Bert, is kicked on the head by a horse. They return home, and later that week, he dies. Oh, no. Yeah, it looks like the injury was a lot more serious than they even knew, and he died in August 1912 at the age of 16. Oh, that's tragic. Yes. The two youngest children were Clara, who married Melbourne Johnson and lived until 1973, 
and the youngest was Ernest, who was born in late 1903 and died in January 1908 at the age of four. Mm. Now we're going to go to Dick's great-grandfather, Aaron Church Hickok. Hickok? Hickok. <laughs> Aaron Church Hickok. He was born in August 1831 in Pittsfield, Massachusetts. Now, when I saw Pittsfield, Massachusetts, I'm like, Massachusetts, Kansas? What? Mm-hmm. So Pittsfield is on the western border of Massachusetts, just a few miles from New York State. He was the oldest son, second oldest child of his parents. Sometime between 1833 and 1835, his family moved to Ohio. Then, by 1847, the family lived in Putnam, Michigan, oh. a small community two hours northwest of Ann Arbor. I know, so they go west, then they go north. I don't know why. One step ahead of the law. Right? <laughs> by, nine, by 1858, though, Aaron is in Walworth County, Wisconsin. This is a county that sits along the border of Illinois between Kenosha and Janesville. Mm -hmm. There he married Lavinia Kinney in October 1858. And Lavinia goes by the name Loney. Hmm. Loney was born around 1845, making her 13 years old when she married Aaron. He was 27. Oh, my God. Mm -hmm. Well, it seems like her parents needed to unload her, but wow. Well, and that's it. I could not find information on her family. Not anything clear. Mm -hmm. The last name, Kinney, sort of common. Mm -hmm. And I couldn't find her in the 1850 census. Like, I would think I found her, but then I wasn't sure. So I'm just not confident in what I was finding. Wow. They were, yeah. They were not in Wisconsin for very long, though. They were in Kansas City, Kansas by 1859 when they had their first child, Charles Wilson Hickok. Now, remember his son, Frank, and then later his grandson, Walter, at one point worked as carpenters. Well, it turns out Aaron was a carpenter. That was his trade. And I found an advertisement in the Kansas City paper. The subscriber wishes to inform the public that he has now in operation a shingle machine capable of turning out 5,000 shingles per day a first-rate quality. They are equal to the best-shaped shingles. He will sell the best kind of oak, walnut, and cottonwood at a very low figure for greenbacks or make on shares for those who choose to furnish the timber. Aaron C. Hickok, Wyandotte, February 11, 1865. Oh, that's really cool. Yeah. Unfortunately for Aaron, he got ill in 1879 and died of malaria on October 8th leaving his wife and six children without a father. The oldest was 20, the youngest not even born yet. Lavinia was pregnant oh when gosh. he died and delivered daughter Daisy just four months later in February 1880. Mm. In the 1880 census, after Aaron's death, we find Loney with all her children still at home. The oldest two sons holding jobs, um, Charles working as a carpenter's apprentice and William doing farm labor. They also had two boarders residing in the home one by the name of George E. Taylor, which becomes significant in a minute. Because on December 16, 1881, Loney marries George Taylor in Kansas City, Missouri. Wow. So, love, it was in the air, I guess. Or it was a good situation for her. Mm -hmm. They have a daughter together, Anna Irene Taylor, in 1884. In November 1903, Loney filed for divorce from George. Oh, wow. And this is according to notices and papers. And it was likely finalized in January 1904. So they were married over 20 years. Makes me curious what was the final straw or what happened. Maybe they were waiting for the last kid to get out of the house. That's, you know what, that's highly possible. Seeing that her youngest was born in 1880. Just think about the timelines. Yeah. 
Loney died in Kansas in November 1905 and buried next to Aaron. Now, a couple notes about a couple of Richard's granduncles and grandaunts, or just only the granduncles. I have grandaunts written, but I don't have any aunts mentioned. <laughs> um, the oldest, Charles Wilson, was born in 1859, and he died in 1908 of blood poisoning at the age of 51. He was a carpenter. Oh, that's sad. Yeah, he was a carpenter by trade. Another Bert Hickok, or Bertie, was born in 1872, and he died of pneumonia on the 22nd of March, 1888. He was 16. Remember the other Bert, um, Richard's uncle, yes. not his granduncle, he died at 16. So I found that a strange coincidence. Uh -huh. Don't name your child Bert Hickok is a lesson, I think, from that. But so he dies. I on promise March... I will never do that. Okay. He, he dies on March 22nd. Four days later, his brother, William H. Hickok, who had visited at the house, probably when Bert was sick, died. He was 22. Oh my God. Yeah. Now we're going to go to Aaron's parents. They were Nathan Hickok and Thankful Ryder. <gasps> I love that name. Isn't that great? And we'll get back to Thankful and her family in a bit. Nathan was born in July 1808 in Pittsfield, Massachusetts to Aaron and Lavina Hickok. He was the sixth of nine children. His siblings were Catherine, Azanath, Alma, Susanna, Hulda, William, and Aaron Church. And Aaron Church died at when he was just shy of a month old. Hmm. And it was also the name he would later give his son, Aaron Church Hickok. Now, I'm not sure of Nathan's job or anything else. But he did marry Thankful around 1826 in Pittsfield. Together they had five children, but only three lived to adulthood. The first child was Caroline Matilda, born in March 1829 and died in September 1829. Oh, that's sad. Yeah. It happened a lot more commonly back then, sadly. Then Aaron was born in 1831, followed next by Louisa Melissa in 1833. The family moved to Putnam, Michigan. And in 1841, they had child number four, Stephen, born in October 1841, but died in March 1842. In January 1847, they had a daughter, Caroline. Now, that's a repeated name. Remember, the first daughter was Caroline. Now they have another Caroline. They often called her Carrie. And after years of doing research, you see that a lot, particularly back in the 18th century or the early 19th century, were they repeat a name because the mm -hmm. children would die and they go, well, we're going to use that name for the next one then. Mm -hmm. they were. I don't know the reasoning on that, but that's what they did. Um, Nathan died at the age of 40 in February 1849 in Putnam, Michigan. I'm sure we have some listeners wondering the following about the Hickoks. Could they be related to Wild Bill Hickok? I don't know for sure because I only had so much time to research, but I might try to dig more later but it's highly possible based on the location the family lived in and Bill's ancestors. So there are people who have done Wild Bill Hickok's um, family tree, and they lived in Pittsfield, Massachusetts at one point. And before that, they were in Connecticut. So it's possible. So Interesting. just so you know, but I do not know for sure. Now we're going to go over to Nathan's wife, Thankful Ryder. This is Dick's great-great-grandmother, and she was born in August 1805. After Nathan's death, she and her three living children, Aaron, Louisa, and Carrie, remained in Michigan for a time. They were there in the 1850 census with Aaron working as a farmer. Now, we do know they headed west, possibly settling in Wisconsin by 1858 when Aaron got married there. But it's just as likely they settled in Illinois. 
I say this because in 1869, Thankful wrote her will and filed it in Waukegan, Illinois. In the 1880 census, her daughter Carrie is living with her, and Carrie worked in a dry goods store as a clerk. Thankful died at the age of 80 in June 1886 in Chicago, according to the probate record and information submitted by daughter Carrie, who ended up being the sole heir. Thankful Ryder was the daughter of Stephen Ryder and Thankful Montague. She was their sixth child out of 14. Charles, Ansel, Stephen, Matilda, Zenas, Louisa, Almira, Rosetta, Lucinda, Lem Lemuel, Daniel, Marianne, and Caroline. Whew. I know. Wow, they almost they had to stop having kids because there weren't any names left. <laughs> They're running out. Stephen Ryder was likely born around 1773. He and Thankful Montague married in June 1795 in Massachusetts. Stephen would die around 1843. Thankful Montague was born in December 1778 in Pittsfield to Lieutenant John Montague. She died in 1858. And I have some more information on the Montague family, but I ran out of time. But they go back a bit. Now, we're going to come back down to Dick's grandmother, Maria Magdalena Barbin Hickok. According to select baptism records out of Switzerland, Maria was born in, on June 21st, 1877, in Spitz, Switzerland, to Samuel Barbin and Maria Magdalena Ruth, their only daughter. She was the fourth of five children. And this part, Spitz, Switzerland, I looked at some pictures. It's along the lake. It's gorgeous. Why would they leave? I don't know. But uh, there, it was a time where a lot of Swiss were immigrating. According to the 1900 census, her family immigrated in 1886, and she was naturalized by 1892. She died in 1944 at the age of 72. Her, her father, Samuel N. Barbin, this is Dick's great-grandfather, was born September 30th in Spitz, Switzerland. The language that they speak in Spitz is German there. It's all along, um, I, should, I forgot to mention this, it sits along Lake Thune. Again, why would you leave that beautiful area and settle in Kansas? <laughs> I mean, I like Kansas fine, but... I like that as far as the whole... Um, and, and end up in Kansas. Yeah, I mean, and, and this is, I've already said, my favorite place in the world is Lawrence, Kansas. It's, I love the area. I love the people. It's wonderful. But Switzerland with mountains and this lake in Kansas, you know, it's not the same. He likely married Mar Maria Magdalena Roof in 1854 in Switzerland, where they would have had at least five children. As said before, they came to the U.S. in 1886 and first settled in Missouri, but they didn't stay there long, and ultimately settling in Clinton, Kansas. And what I find interesting is they settle in Clinton, which sits along a lake, like their town in Switzerland did. Um, Maria died at age 65 in December 1895. After Maria's death, he lived with his son John and family until his death. In February 1907, I was able to trace the Barbin line back to Abraham Barbin, likely born in the mid-18th century in Switzerland. Hmm. Now, I do want to mention some of the Barbin uncles. So these are Dick's grand uncles. Um, the first one I talk about is Godfrey. He was born in 1869 in Switzerland, and he never married. And then I found this article, likely in one of the Lawrence papers, that says the following. Godfrey Barbin, aged about 24 years, was drowned yesterday afternoon in the Wakarusa, about a mile below the Sigel Bridge. He had undressed and gone to take a bath 
and as no one was about, how the accident occurred is not known. Search was made when the young man was missed, and about five o'clock the body was found, 50 yards down the stream. He was a popular young man and the son of Mr. S. Barbin, who owns a big farm on the creek. Wow. Then there's John. He was the youngest son of Samuel and Maria, and born around in September 1873 in Switzerland. In 1900, he married Mrs. Marie Schultz, and she was a widow with two children, Johanna and Frederick. Now, John and Maria would have four children by 19, July 1906. So this is six years, four children. Then there was a surprise when Maria's next pregnancy was with quadruplets. Oh, my. Yes. Wow. And that's not something that happens by in nature, usually. That's very, very rare. Right. This is before IVF and fertility treatments. This was a natural occurrence. Yes. Wow. That's a huge wow. That's a huge wow. But sadly, I'll, I'll read the following article. The fourth of the quadruplet babies born last summer to Mrs. John Barbin, a Swiss farmer woman living near here, is dead. The bodies of the other three were exhumed and the four were placed in one grave. The Barbin quadruplets attracted a good deal of attention at the time they were born, as it was the first instance of four children at one birth ever known anywhere near here. The children were all very strong, healthy, appearing youngsters and weighed 16 pounds, the weight being distributed among them pretty evenly. So basically, they each probably weighed about four pounds. So they were tiny babies. Yeah. All were girls. The attending physician predicted that all of them would live, and they did so for a time. The first one died when a few weeks old. The other two died later at intervals. The fourth passed away this week. Mrs. Barbin, the mother, is a young woman not yet 40 and is the mother of 14 children. Now, oh, wow. I never found 14. I'm sure she was. And the baby's names were Angel, Opal, Pearl, and Ruby. Ruby was the one they were talking about who lived the longest, and she lived to be close to two, three months old, two and a half months old. Mm, that's just so sad. Yeah. John and Maria would go on to have four more children after this loss. Oh, that's so sad. Yeah. I mean, I'm glad they had more children, but wow. Yeah, but that's a, it's, that's a hard loss for anybody. Yeah. When you lose a baby, you have all this expectation and all these dreams, and yeah. So that's what I have for the paternal line. Now we're going to go over to the maternal line. And now we get some more complicated stuff because this line gets tricky with some interesting twists and turns. Starting with Richard's mother, Eunice, who I found, interestingly enough, I could never find where her name, how she came to be called Eunice. Because in the census records and all this, her name was Laura. Aletha. Huh. But she was called Eunice. So I don't know if it was a second middle name and it just was dropped off on certain things, but sometimes she would appear in a paper as Laura, sometimes as Eunice. That's interesting. Mm -hmm. Are we sure there weren't twins? <laughs> no, they were not. <laughs> so she was born in October 1901 in Missouri to parents Jesse Theodore Hutzel and Desi Woods. By the time she was eight, her family moved to Kansas City, Kansas, where she grew up. In March 1920, she married Jesse Eugene Moore in Leavenworth, Kansas. But it was a very short marriage due to a tragedy. And this is uh, the headline in the paper. K.C. Switchman dies. Jesse E. Moore, 24 years old, a Rock Island Switchman, died yesterday at Bethany Hospital from a shock following injuries suffered early yesterday when he fell under a switch engine at South Valley and Rock Island tracks. Both legs were severed. He had alighted from the engine to throw a switch. Surviving are his wife, Mrs. Eunice Moore, and 
what I find interesting about papers back then is it gives you their home address. So mm. if you want to look up where they lived, go for it. Zenas Moore home address, 914 Homer Avenue. His parents, a sister, and a brother. So their marriage ended a lot quicker than could be anticipated. Then she got married again, but not to Walter Hickok. This time she got married to Wilford Finn on February 29th, 1924 in Council Bluffs, Iowa. Yes, February 29th. It was a leap year and they got married on the leap day. The marriage did not last. They divorced before 1928 when he married again. Then it was around sometime between 1929 and 1930, she and Walter Hickok married. Now, during the trial of her son, Richard, she had cancer. And it's brought up, actually, in in the book, In Cold Blood. And at one point, it comes up in the newspaper that she was ill. And I noticed that she applied for Social Security Disability Benefits in 1963. But despite the cancer and all that, she lived a long life and didn't pass away until July 1989 in Kansas. Wow. Um, I have a hard time finding what happened to her specifically, but she never remarried as far as I can tell. I found her in the Social Security Death Index. Wow. Now, her father, Jesse Theodore Hutzel, so Dick's grandfather, I don't think Laura ever knew her or Eunice ever knew him. I'll explain why in a minute. Oh. Because he was born in April 1878 in Dade County, Missouri. And Dade County sits between Joplin and Springfield. That's a little bit to the north of those. And his parents were George and Lissy. He was the second oldest of seven children. By 1900, the family had moved north to El Dorado Springs in Cedar County, Missouri. It was likely there that he met Desi Woods, who would become his wife, on the 18th of November, 1900. He was 22. Mm-hmm. She was 16. That's yeah. a real thing in this family. They, they tend to marry young. The marriage, though, was very short. I don't know how short. I do know that Desi divorced... Jesse, likely between 1905 and 1907, but possibly earlier. Desi remarried around 1907, and it was Laura's stepfather who raised her. Interesting. And it doesn't appear that Jesse ever saw Laura again because Jesse left Missouri. Wow. He headed for Oklahoma because that's where his family went. So in the 1910 census, he's listed as divorced and living with his parents in Luther, Oklahoma. Luther is in Oklahoma County, the same county that has Oklahoma City, and it's about 30 miles to the northeast of Oklahoma City. And in 1910, he's working as a carpenter. Now, it seems that Jesse moved around a bit, but it doesn't ever seem that he ever came back to Missouri or to Kansas City, Kansas, where his daughter is being raised. Mm. So in 1918, according to the World War I draft, he was living in Winona, Oklahoma, a town 45 miles to the northwest of Tulsa. It's possible Jesse moved there for oil because in 1914, oil was discovered in Winona. By 1920, the town had over 2,700 residents. After the Great Depression and Dust Bowl, people left. Today, the town of Winona has a population of 434. Wow. Right? Now, I in 1930, though, I find Jesse in Garden City, Kansas, a town that nearly doubled in population between 1920 and 1930. A lot of people were heading there. Interestingly enough, are you ready for this, Zelda? Okay. Garden City is in Finney County. Holcomb, Kansas, where the Clutter family was, is in uh-huh. Finney County. Oh, Wow. Mm-hmm. That's a little, wow. It's an interesting coincidence. Mm-hmm. But like I said, Laura did not have a relationship with her father. So that means her sons never knew their grandfather. Yeah. Or at least not the grandfather 
by biology. Wow. Mm -hmm. Then 1940, Jesse is now in Nickerson, Kansas. This town is 170 miles to the east of Garden City and 60 miles northwest of Wichita. And he moved yet again. Wow. In 1942, in the World War II draft, Jesse is now living in Grinnell, Kansas, a small town that today is right off of I-70, about 70 miles west of Hayes, Kansas. And in the World War II draft, it does mention that he was blind in his left eye. Now, huh. I found that interesting because was Dick blind in one eye or is it just he had the damage to that side of his face? I'm not sure. Huh. Yeah. Jesse died at the end of July 1944 in Hayes, Kansas. He never married again and was 66 at his death. I looked at an old railway map because I was curious about Jesse's movements through Kansas. And it turns out that each place he lived in Kansas was a stop on the railroad. Huh. Every city he lived in Kansas was a stop. The only town actually from all the places he lived that was not a stop on the railroad was Winona, Oklahoma. Interesting. Yeah, I found that fascinating. It's almost like he would just decide, well, I'm going to go where the train takes me. And he didn't work for the train. No. So there's no reason to stay near the train. Unless he was doing carpentry for the train railroad, but I didn't see evidence of that. But How wild. You never know. Now, what is interesting is Jesse's family did not forget that he had this daughter because in his obituary, she's actually mentioned. And he must not have realized she went by Eunice because here's his obituary. Jesse Theodore Hutzel, who spent his early life in El Dorado Springs, but who left here about 40 years ago, died last Saturday evening at a hospital in Hayes, Kansas. The son of the late George P. Hutzel and his and wife, early residents of El Dorado Springs, who was born April 19, 1878 in Dade County. He was married to Miss Desi Ward. They got her last name wrong, but there you go. And they were the parents of one daughter, now Mrs. Laura Hitchcock of Kansas City, Kansas. Besides his daughter, he leaves one brother. And then it goes on to tell his siblings. I have some information coming in a little bit because I have a little insider information on the Hutzels in a little bit. Ooh, that's exciting. Yes. So we're going to go on to Jesse's father, George Pulaski Hutzel. This is Dick's great-grandfather. He was born in Blount County, Tennessee in 1854. This is a county just to the south of Knoxville. And sometime between 1870 and 1876, the family relocated from Tennessee to Dade County, Missouri. And that's where George met Lizzie or Elizabeth Hosey, and they got married in April 1876 in Cedar County, Missouri. He was 22. Guess how old she was? 16. Very good. Wow. I'm getting good at this. Yes. In 1907, we find George working as a sheriff's deputy. In papers, there's reference to a G.W. Hutzel, a sheriff, but I'm pretty sure this was George Pulaski. In 1909, the family moved to Luther, Oklahoma. And this is when I believe Jesse left Missouri altogether. The three oldest children, all boys, stayed in Missouri. George died in February 1915 in Oklahoma. Lizzie would live another 37 years. However, she didn't stay in Luther the whole time. By 1920, she's living with her son, Frank, and her mother in Billings, Montana. Oh my gosh. Yes. That poor man. <laughs> <laughs> He's living with his mother and grandmother. Uh-huh. 
Yeah. She has my sympathy. Then in 1930, she lived with her daughter, Maude, and her family in Kennedale, Washington, hmm. which is outside of um, Seattle. She stayed in Washington until at least 1944. And it could be she stayed there her whole life, but I know at some point she ends up in Luther, Oklahoma, where I believe that's where she died, or at least she that's where she was buried mm-hmm. in December 1952. So George died in February 1915, and this, this obituary is amazing. <laughs> when I saw the obituary, the opening part of it, I had to read to my husband, who also does genealogy. We're very familiar with old-time obituaries because they're hysterical people. You just, just for fun, go and read some old ones. This one had us just rolling. So here we go. After a long period of suffering and pain on Tuesday evening at 7, 10 o'clock, February 16th, 1915, George P. Hutzel answered the roll call in the unknown beyond and suffers no more. Oh my gosh. <laughs> the roll call. Wow. I just, I, I died. Okay. So deceased was born April 7th, 1854 in Memphis, Tennessee. They got that part wrong, but that's okay. When yet a young man, he accepted the promises of a Christian life and joined the Methodist church. But after a time, became indifferent in his religious duties until a few months ago, he renewed his vow with his Lord. So in other words, he stopped going to church until right before he died. Hey, at least he eventually came around. I guess. On March 16, 1876, he was married to Miss Elizabeth Hosey in Cedar County, Missouri. Seven children blessed this union, all of whom survive him and all present except one boy who lives in Missouri. So, oh, that's nice. Yeah. But the roll call. <laughs> you just... They get flowery sometimes. So I know. when I work for the Salvation Army, when somebody would pass away, they say they had been promoted to eternity. Like, <laughs> yeah, I know, right? God love them. I don't know if that's a promotion, but you know, there you go. Now, we're going to talk about Dick's um, grand uncles and aunts from, so basically George, George Pulaski's kids. Okay. Daughter Georgia. So this is George Pulaski's daughter, Georgia. She was born around... In October 1894, and she married Grover Burrell in Oklahoma County, Oklahoma, in 1912. They had two children, a son and daughter. The daughter was Adelaide. I bring this up because this is where I kind of get my inside information about the family and Luther, Oklahoma, where the family settled from one of Adelaide's Burrell cousins. Okay. Um, Her name's Sharon McAllister, and she was a great help. And what happened is I was on find a grave. I noticed a date was wrong and you can go on there and make a suggestion to get the date corrected. So she emailed me back and we ended up emailing back and forth and she gave me some good information. And I'll share a picture of Adelaide. She's beautiful. Oh, yay. I'll also include some photos of Luther around the time the family moved there that were provided by Sharon. Oh, how fun. That's very cool. It's pretty cool. So and Adelaide would have been... Dick's first cousin one time removed. And what's interesting is when I'm talking to Sharon, she goes, I had, she goes, I remember when this happened, when the family was murdered and it being in the papers and all that. She goes, I had no idea that he was related to the Hutzels. Oh, wow. This confirms my feeling that there was no relationship. Hmm. And that's kind of sad to me. Yeah. It kind of makes you wonder, you know, although I have to say I have been astounded again and again at how often dads leave and don't look back. Right. And I, and I, you don't see moms do that as often, you know, no. it still happens, but it's much, much more rare. Right. And it makes you wonder, did mom say, go away? I don't want to ever see you again. Or did he just go, well, it's over. So I'm not going to come back. I don't know. Yeah. It's, you know, it's so far back mm-hmm. that we don't know. But from the Daily Oklahoman, on 8th of May, 1998, Luther observed its 100th birthday. 
And according to the granddaughter, Adelaide Burrell Loman Legrand, when George and Lissy arrived and staked their claim, the first thing they did was build a barn. And she, there's a quote of her. She goes, they lived in the barn until they had time to build a house because providing shelter for the animals was the most important thing. Wow. Mm-hmm. Good on them, though. They knew what was important, you know. Right. And the following information was shared to me by Sharon about, and I'm going to just quote her directly. The Hutzel family arrived in Luther's early boom days when the two railroads provided transportation for long distances and people used horses and wagons for local transportation. There are also plenty of tales about people who thought nothing of walking 20 miles to a larger city for supplies. So I suppose local is subjective. Luther had two hotels. The third had recently burned, and an unknown number of boarding houses, two banks, two lumber companies, at least two cotton gins, at least two blacksmith shops, two barber shops, a pool hall, and a variety of stores, including specialty ones like a butcher shop and a millinery shop. The two older sons remained in Missouri. Jesse moved on to northeastern Oklahoma as the oil industry boomed. So that supports my theory about oil being the reason he went to Winona. And apparently lived in a number of different places following the demand for carpenters. After George P. Hutzel died, Elizabeth and the younger children apparently moved to live with her mother. That left only Georgia Hutzel, by then married to Grover Varel and Luther. They had a general store on the Ozark Trail shortly after it entered town from the east. So it was a really booming area at the time. She showed me some more recent pictures. It doesn't look like it's booming anymore. Yeah. But I'm sure the Dust Bowl and everything that happened after they settled decimated the town. Well, and honestly, as people moved away from rail. um, Right. Because, I mean, if you follow like the Santa Fe Railway, you're going through a lot of ghost towns that used to be boom towns. Well, and the town now does sit along Route 66. Mm-hmm. And and she did mention that, that it at one point it it went through, but before it came through town the whole way when they were working on it, but it was blocked off and that hurt the town too. Mm-hmm. Oh yeah, there's so. nothing nothing worse than an interstate that gets built and there's no exit to your town. Right. Because then people, I mean, there's nobody stopping, you know, so there's no outside commerce. Right. Anyway. Well, we're going to continue with um, the grand uncles and aunts, the children of George Pulaski. And one of them is, and this is kind of an entertaining story to a degree. So George and Elizabeth adopted a girl by the name of Kathleen, who went by the name Katie. And they adopted her either as a baby or a young child. I'm not sure. She was born in June, 1890. In 1907, at the age of 15, Katie ran away and a man was arrested for her abduction. Oh, wow. So here's the story from the Cherryvale Republican from um, June 18th, 1907 that I found. Katie Hutzel feared that a suit for libel would be instituted in the courts of Cedar County against her for alleged slander, when in reality she was innocent. She came to me a week ago and asked me to take her away. She is my wife's niece. That was a statement made to the reporter by L.D. McLean, age 39, arrested here with charges, officers charging him with abduction of 15-year-old Katie Hutzel, daughter of G.W. Hutzel, sheriff of Cedar County, Missouri. J.H. Nichols, a deputy sheriff of Cedar County under Sheriff Hutzel, went on to Anderson yesterday morning, found the girl at the place designated by McLean, and returned with her to Joplin. Miss Hutzel, who McLean asserts is 18 years old, she wasn't, denied yesterday that she had been abducted by McLean and bore out the statement made by the prisoner yesterday that Miss Hutzel entered into the compact 
at her own free will. <laughs> so was it a romantic relationship or was she just basically paying him to escort her somewhere? Or was he lying about him taking her? I'm not sure, but there's more. In El Dorado Springs, Miss Hutzel is well known and popular. She was informed through other sources that two popular El Dorado Springs girls had been seen in a beer parlor drinking with two young men. Miss Hutzel spread the gossip. The story <gasps> reached the parents of the I know the story reached the parents of the two girls. They in turn attempted to trace the story to its origin, threatening lawsuits for slander. The matter was traced to Miss Hutzel. She frankly admitted that she had been informed by certain other El Dorado Springs people. When questioned by the parents, the people named by Miss Hutzel denied that they had heard of the matter. To Miss Hutzel, it seemed that a cloud of shame and that she might be forced into the courts was hovering over her. To add to her discomfiture, her brother, in a spirit of humor, although accepted otherwise by her, shamed her for disgracing the family, adding that he was in her place, he would leave the country. <laughs> Sounds like a brother. Exactly, right? Oh my gosh. Yep. That's Knowing that Mr. McLean, her uncle by marriage, contemplated going to Joplin to obtain a position, Miss Hutzel, in the presence of her aunt, asked to be permitted to accompany Mr. McLean. Mr. McLean and Miss Hutzel left El Dorado Springs at night on horseback. They rode to Montevallo, seven, uh, 17 miles distance, and they stayed with, um, they ended up staying with one of his cousins, apparently. The horses were sold here in Montevallo, as per previous intentions. And the trip to jo and the trip to Joplin and later to Anderson was made by rail. Both Mr. McLean and Miss Hutzel declared the evil thoughts never existed between them. She has always considered me as a favorite uncle, said McLean, in his cell at the police station yesterday. Oh my goodness. Yes. Yeah, I can totally see how that happened though. You know Right? Yeah. Now I tried to figure out if he ever got convicted. A couple months later, he was still in jail and he get, was able to post bond $500, which is quite a bit back then. Wow. So some quick notes. McLean was around 29. I believe it said he was 38 or 39. No, he was 29. Okay. He and Katie stopped overnight at this cousin's house in Montevallo. So Anderson, and so they end up in Anderson, Missouri, right? Anderson is over a hundred miles from El Dorado Springs where they started. L.D. McLean was Luther McLean, who was married to George Pulaski's sister, Mary Frances or Fanny. And he was her second husband. And she was a bit older than him too. Mm -hmm. But she had children, married, that whole thing. I don't believe he served much of any time because by 1910, he and George, uh, Fanny were living in Kansas. Wow, no now, good deed ever goes unpunished, huh? Right. She either died by 1915 or they were divorced. Okay. Because I see him married to somebody else later. So I'm like trying to dig going and I'm like, this is the how my murdering on mine works. I'm like, did he kill her? Did he do something to her? Where is she? I'm, I'm not accusing this man of doing this if you're a relation. I'm just... This is how my mind goes. I could not find what happened to her. Wow. But she died in Kansas and the death records in Kansas are not the best. If she died in Kansas, I mean. Anyhow, Katie, though, went on and ended up marrying Howard Randall in July 1921. And she was studying to be a nurse. After an unexpected illness that brought in apparently a lot of doctors, she died after three days at the age of 31. So they got married and she died of not long, too long after. Now we're going to go to George Pulaski's father. So this is the second great grandparents of 
um, Richard, okay. Major George Washington Hutzel. George was born and raised in Blount County, Tennessee, staying until he left with his family from Missouri between 1870 and 1876, when he would have been in his 40s. However, for reasons that are not clear, he was in Georgia for a short time, long enough to marry Mary Elizabeth Truett in August 1850, George Pulaski's mother. But they short, they returned to Tennessee. Neither one of them are in the 1850 census. Hmm. She's not with her family. He's not with his. They were probably like in between places as the census is going on. Wow. So I can't find them. Um, George and Mary would go on to have at least six children. Unlike many of his neighbors in the Confederate state of Tennessee, George supported the Union and enlisted in Company A of the 3rd Tennessee Volunteer Infantry as a captain. He couldn't enlist in Tennessee because it's a Confederate state. Mm -hmm. So this unit actually formed in Flatlick, Kentucky, a small town about 20 miles from the Tennessee-Kentucky border. And George enlisted in February 1862. But his time in the 3rd Tennessee Volunteer Infantry wasn't very long because in July 1862, he was promoted to major and transferred to the 2nd Tennessee Volunteer Cavalry, a regiment organized in Murfreesboro, Tennessee that same month. Okay. Now, in fact, if you look up this regiment in Wikipedia, you will find the following. The 2nd Tennessee Cavalry mustered in for a three-year enlistment under the command of Colonel Daniel M. Ray, Subordinate officers include Lieutenant Colonel William R. Cook and Majors George W. Hutzel, mm -hmm. Charles Inman, William R. Macbeth, and William F. Prosser. Mm -hmm. And it goes on to say that there were two women in the unit who had pretended to be men. One was Sarah Bradbury and the other, Frances Elizabeth Quinn. Well, good on them. Now, yeah. Now, Frances, Frances is the type of woman I want to be. And I, I feel like I'm getting late on this, but, you know, she was an Irish immigrant who came to the United States with her parents when she was three years old. Sadly, she and her brother were orphaned at a very young age. So the Civil War starts and her brother joined the fight in the Union side at age 14, probably lying about his age so he could join. So she, her brother's gone off. He's younger. She's 16. She decides to do the same thing. She used the name Frank Miller, and she enlisted at least five different times. Wow. Each time she was found out. Wow. And when she was with the second, they found her out within the first month. You know, I got to tell you about the time your period comes along in those conditions. That's really hard to keep, you know. Yeah. I mean, you can look her up on Wikipedia, but I believe it. The last time they ended up putting her in a position so that she wouldn't keep jumping in and enlisting, you know, type of situation. And the last one, I mean, I think she was in there for about six months before they realized it. Mm -hmm. She was getting better at hiding with time. But anyhow, back to the 2nd Tennessee Cavalry. They fought in some notable battles. The Battle of Stones River. Now, Stones River might sound some a little bit familiar because Charles Manson's second great-grand-uncle, John Amos Wallace, who was the brother of Rachel Wallace Maddox, died at Stones River around that time. Oh, wow. He just died of tuberculosis, not the battle. So we have an overlap there. Wow. Um, but the second also was at the Tullahoma Campaign, the Battle of Chickamauga, and the Battle of Nashville. Um, George mustered out, resigning his commission in February 1865. Now, <clears throat> I have a postmaster alert. 
Yes. Mm-hmm. I'm into the Postmasters. I know. After he returned home on the 12th of July, 1867, George became a U.S. Postmaster for Montvale Springs, Tennessee. Good on him. Yeah. Nice government job. (laughs) Now, when the family did go to Missouri, they first settled in Dade County, but would later move to El Dorado Springs, where George died in July 1895 at age 66. His wife, Mary, was born in June 1830 in Harris County, Georgia. It's a county just to the north of Columbus. She was the daughter of William P. Truett, who was born around 1799 in Georgia, and Martha Sharp, born around 1806. She was the only daughter of nine children. Mary died in El Dorado Springs, Missouri, 12 years after George in July 1907. So George Washington Hutzel was the son of yet another George, George Henry Hutzel, born December 1793 in White, Virginia. No idea who his mother was. It's likely George Henry married this unknown woman around 1827. She would have been George Henry's second wife. They had five children together, with George Washington being the oldest. As for George Henry's first wife, that was Betsy Clemens. She was born in 1797, and they got married in 1818 and wife. They likely moved with their two children to Tennessee around 1824. Betsy died in 1825 year their third child elizabeth and betsy was born so it's quite possible she died in childbirth Mm. oh and as for the unknown second wife she likely died by 1848 because george henry married again this time to Catherine skipper they had one daughter matilda but that would not be the last of his wives oh no there's more he next married elizabeth maxwell in 1851 and wife number five was margaret ralston in 1865 wow And get this, Margaret was 40 years his junior. Wow. Yeah. And they had one daughter together. Wow. In total, George had 10 children. He died at the age of 88. His fifth wife followed 22 years later. Wow. Now, George was the son of Johannes, or John Hutzel. So this is Dick's fourth great-grandfather. And Johannes was born in 1746 in Frederick, Maryland. He married Elizabeth Davis was born in 1750 in Shenandoah, Virginia. They got married in April 1775 in Virginia and had at least four children. He died around 1823. So now we're to the fifth great-grandfather of Dick, Johann George Hetzel. He is the immigrant of the family. He was born in October 1711 in Pfaffenhofen, Württemberg, Germany. And he married Anna Maria Magdalena Schweinhardt, was born in January 1725 in Lancaster, Pennsylvania. Anna Maria Magdalena Schweinhardt. Yes. I love that name so much. Now I want to have a kid just to name her that. I'm not sure if there's a date off here because they got married in June 1739 in Frederick, Maryland, which means that she was only 14. Ew. So, and he was 28. So much ew. But I got to tell you, I am beginning to get not surprised about this in his line because, I mean, admittedly, sometimes people got married younger back then, Mm -hmm. Um, but we're still seeing some extremely young ages, which was actually unusual. Um, I imagine it got remarked upon if somebody married a 14 year old back then. I mean, probably not to the point of like arrest the man or something, but just like, Hmm, he's, you know, 
dig a little deep in that well or something. I mean, just. Right. It's a little unusual for that to be happening. Yeah. Before I go on, let me figure out. So, Johan, and I said George, John, but he also went by George Hutzel. So, I found some information on the Hutzels and the Schweinharts in a book called, and I'm just butcher the word. So, if you, you know the correction, tell me. Pioneers of Old Monocacy or Monocacy, M O N O C A C Y, the early settlement of Frederick County, Maryland, 1721 to 1743. The book's by Grace L. Tracy and John P. Dern. And this, pub, this book was published in 1987. I'm going to tell you what the book says about Johann George Hutzel. He is believed to be the Erg Hutzel who with Ludwig Herzl arrived in Philadelphia, August 29th, 1730, on the Scottish ship Thistle of Glasgow, which had sailed from Rotterdam by way of Dover. By June 17th, 1739, George Hutzel was at Monacassin when he married Magdalena Schweinhardt. George Hutzel adhered closely to the Lutheran religion in Frederick County, contributing to the purchase of its first church book in 1742 signing Pastor Muhlenberg's Articles of 1747 and having his first five children baptized by Lutheran pastors during the period 1743 to 1753. On October 19, 1743, John George Hutzel and his father-in-law, George Schweinhardt, took communion from Pastor Candler preparatory to their naturalization. George Hutzel died on May 2, 1778, probably of a stroke, his widow, Magdalena, died in June 1788, survived by 10 of their 12 children. Wow. So now we're going to go to Magdalena Schweinhardt's. So this is Anna Maria Magdalena Schweinhardt's father, Johann George Schweinhardt. Okay. He was born in Württemberg, Germany as well, to Hans Jörg Schweinhardt and Elisabetha Barbara. Now, there's a section in this book about the lower German settlement in Frederick County. And it goes, the first official record found to date, which shows the beginning of the German settlement in today's Frederick County is an interesting document in Prince George's County court records. And just to understand, um, Frederick County came from part of Prince George County and another county. Okay. And it concerns one John George Schweinhardt. But John George Schweinhardt had arrived in Pennsylvania before January 8th, 1725, when his daughter Magdalena was born. He thus does not appear in the Philadelphia arrival list, which do not begin until 1727. He must have come to the area of today's Frederick County in 1731, or late in 1730, he was still in today's New Hanover Township of Montgomery County, Pennsylvania, which is now, which was then Philadelphia, I mean. Okay, George Schweinhardt, as he was henceforth known in English records, allowed his name to be used as a signatory to the 1742 petition to divide Prince George's Parish. He was naturalized in the provincial court on October 19, 1743, having taken communion from David Candler, as I mentioned above. I found this next part hysterically funny in my own warped sense of humor, because I'm thinking to myself, why doesn't everybody do this? So, George Schweinhardt petitioned the November 1747 Court of Prince George's County to be made levy-free because of his age. Aha, uh-huh. that's awesome. Yes. 
to support his claim for such tax exemption, he testified that it is set down in his Bible that he was born the fourth day of March in the year 1681. His petition was denied. Oh my gosh. But darn, if I I wish we all would have thought to do that. Anyhow, well, actually, his, there are places, like there's a senior citizen's discount on property taxes in most places. Oh, wow. I didn't know that. Oh, yeah. My dad like was in just heaven when, cause, <laughs> and, and most states and counties and stuff all have that. So he was trying to basically um, establish his age and they're like, yeah, we don't believe you. Right. That's so <laughs> funny. His wife, Anna Margaret, was born in July 1691 and died on May 19, 1776, 20 years after his death in 1756. They were married in 1718 and had nine children. After George Swinehart's death, his widow, Anna Margaret Swinehart, married Adam Miller in 1759. Miller died in 1767, and she married again in 1771, this time to Philip Grindler. Wow. So now we're going to go to Elizabeth Posey Hutzel, the wife of George Pulaski, and talk about her family. Her father was Thomas Hosey, so he would be the second great-grandfather of Dick Hickok. He was born around 1838 in Kentucky. He moved with his family from Clinton, Kentucky to Cedar County, Missouri by 1858. And it was there that he married Nancy McCalla J. Stubblefield on Christmas Eve, 1858 in Cedar County. Mm -hmm. And they had two children, Lissy and James. Hmm. Now, I do not know the circumstances. It's possibly the Civil War, but Thomas died before 1867 in his 20s, likely around 1862 or 1863. And we'll come back to what happened to his wife, Nancy Stubblefield. His father was John B. Hosey, who was born around 1806 in North Carolina. He married Eliza J. around 1836. She was likely... 16 he was 30 i'm telling you they had nine children three girls six boys that's like the fan beyond <laughs> wow this family like all the 16 year olds were not safe around these men right <laughs> the family at least seven of the children left kentucky and settled in cedar county in the 1850s it's unknown when john and his wife died but possibly before 1880 but it's also possible she married after he died. So I I don't know. Uh, but John's parents were Thomas Hosey and Charlotte, both born in around 1774 in North Carolina. Now we're going to go back down to Nancy McCalla J. Stubblefield, who was married to Thomas Hosey. Um, so this is Lissy's mother. And she was born in February 1842 in Missouri possibly Cedar County. After her husband died and the war came to an end, she married William J. Marshall, an Englishman, on the 1st of September, 1867. They had one son together, Alfred Wilson Marshall, in 1873. It's likely William died as well because they mm -hmm. married again, this time to George W. Accord. And I'm not sure if I'm pronouncing it right, but it's A-C-H-O-R-D. And they married in March 1876, and they had a daughter, Martha, born the next year. In the 1880 census, I found that George had at least six children from a previous marriage, and they were still living in Cedar County. But by 1900, the marriage is clearly over. Although both are listed as married, they didn't live in the same household, I much less the same county. 
I just want to point out how many of these young marriages are not lasting. Yes. I'm like, maybe the men should learn about that. Maybe there's a reason for it. Yeah. yeah. Marry age appropriate women. Yes. So George lived in Bates County, Missouri in 1900. Nancy lived in Polk County with her son, Alfred. Oh, Polk County's pretty. Yeah. George died in 1901. Then Nancy started moving. In 1911, she lived in Cheyenne, Wyoming. What <laughs> What brought her to Cheyenne? Do you know? I'm not positive. I mean, we had some people ending up in Montana with their moms and grandmas, but... <laughs> well, this is the... Now, remember, that that's exactly who we're talking about, though. So this is Lissy's mother, okay. right? And Lissy is the mother of Jesse. Okay. And Lissy is also the one who ended up in Montana. Okay. Living there with her mother. And this is her mother. Okay. In 1920, she's living with her daughter, Lissy, and grandson, Frank, where Frank worked as a messenger boy. This is when they're in Montana. But she even went further west, probably with her daughter in 1930, and went to Kennedale, Washington. Well, she just kind of got traveling feet on her. Yes. And in 1930, she was still living with her son, Alfred. And she died the next year, 1931, in Seattle. Interesting. Now, Nancy was the daughter of Robert Stubblefield, born around 1803 in North Carolina, and Elizabeth Kennedy, born around 1810 in Tennessee. Robert was the son of Wyatt and Ann Chalice. Well, Wyatt Stubblefield and Ann Chalice. He had at least one brother. His father, Wyatt, was born in 1760 and died around 1824 in North Carolina, when he would have been around 21. Oh, that's tragic. Yeah. It seems Robert likely came to Missouri on his own, as his brother, 11 years his senior, settled in Mississippi, where he died in 1842. I find it fascinating that thus far, there have been no criminals in his lineage. Right. So I really, it just bears, you know, it just makes me think again, I think it was getting brain damaged. That yeah, really was his right. downfall. Because otherwise, I think he would have led a totally normal life. Other than having a lot more divorces than normal and a lot more separations with marriage, probably because they're marrying women who are too young to be married. And for all we know, they're having to do that because nobody their own age wants anything to do with them. <laughs> we don't know. Fair point Is the problem there. that the girls, is it the problem that their wives are too young or is it the problem with them? We don't know. Right. So there was some unsteadiness and some stuff, but from all descriptions and all accounts, Richard's family life was a good one. Right. And, you know, it just clicked with me. The teenage girl he wanted to rape was 16. Oh, my goodness sakes. Wow. Wow. Something about okay. that number 16. If any yeah. of his descendants are listening, any of this family <laughs> listening, avoid the number 16 in all circumstances. Yes. <laughs> well, yeah, it seems that Robert came to Missouri on his own, like I said, and he was in Missouri by 1830, living in Cole County. That's where Jefferson City, the capital of Missouri, is. Robert and Elizabeth married in February 1833 in Morgan County, Missouri. It's a county to the west of Cole, and it's also known for a lake there called the Lake of the Ozarks. And if you're ever in Missouri and you hear people going, well, I'm going to the lake this weekend, that's what they're referring to. By 1840, they moved south to Polk County, they moved once more, settling in Cedar County by 1850. They had eight children in 13 years. 
They're last being born around 1846. Hmm. Now we're going to go back to Eunice's mother, Desi Woods. So Dick's grandmother. She was born in March 1884 in Virginia to William Woods and Margaret Cooley. I have no idea when they left Virginia, but it was between 1887 and 1900. After Desi divorced Jesse Hutzel, while he left for Oklahoma, she moved to Kansas City, Kansas, where she married her second husband, Miles M. Corlew, a man originally from Texas. They married around 1907, according to the 1910 census, and had one child, Margaret Bell Corlew, in 1911. Miles raised Laura Eunice and likely considered her his daughter. He died in March 1936. Desi would marry one last time around 1939 to Arthur Duffield, a post office clerk. Desi died September 1967 in Springdale, Arkansas at the age of 83. So she was probably well aware of what was going on with her grandson. Mm. And I bet like the rest of us, she said, if only he'd never been in that car accident. Yeah. Now, Desi's parents were William Thomas Woods, who was born June 1849 in Virginia, and Margaret Emmeline Cooley, born in February 1848 in Virginia. William and Margaret married around 1872 and had at least eight children. They came to Missouri sometime after the birth of their youngest child, Dilly May, and their 1900 census. They didn't stay in Cedar County for too long, though, relocating to Adams, Missouri, and DeKalb County. And it's a town about 170 miles north. It's the county to the east of St. Joseph, Missouri. Okay. Margaret died in 1926, William in 1929. I was unable to find their death certificates in Missouri, which frustrated me because death certificates in Missouri are available from 1910 to 1967. So I'm like, why am I not finding it? Which leads me to believe they died somewhere other than Missouri. Okay. But they were buried in DeKalb County. Okay. Now, Margaret Emmeline Cooley, that's the great-grandmother of Dick Dick Hickok. Boy, that's so hard to say together. <laughs> it is. And she's the mother of Desi. Her parents were Benjamin F. Cooley and Mary Jane Patterson, both born around 1825. They married in 1847 in Wythe, Virginia, and had at least one other child, William. Have no idea what happened to them after 1850. And then Joseph Cooley, the third great grandfather of Richard Hickok, because that's easier to say, um, were Benjamin's parent, was Benjamin's father, and he was married to Catherine. Benjamin had at least one brother, Joseph, 13 years his junior. In 1850, Joseph and Catherine lived in Wythe, where Joseph worked as a miller. And that is the tree of Richard Eugene Dick Hickok. Dun dun! Dun, dun, dun. Wow. I just, I, you know, I went into this with absolutely no sympathy for this guy. I mean, like none, because mm-hmm. he's a cold-blooded killer, you know? Right. But, and I really expected to see, you know, just more chaos in his background or, right. you know, something. And it's like, wow, I really firmly believe it was that car accident. And it had to be, but, you know. I found, and I, I sent it to you, his arrest records, mm-hmm. and I went through, there was like 700-something pages mm-hmm. of his prison file, and I found his arrest, and I, I, I'm not sure I can post it, because I'm not sure if there's, if I have to ask permission, mm-hmm. 
but it's interesting. You could see his, they have his full arrest record and I'm looking at it right now. And I know 1950 was when the accident was, mm -hmm. but his first arrest was actually in, I think, was that arrest? Um, was in 1949. So, but then he enlisted in the Marines, but really there was no real crime until after he gets out of the Marines. He's at home. It starts in 1857. Wait, he was in the Marines? Yes. Dick Hickok. This is according to the FBI report. Wow. I did not know that. Wow. Yep. Um, he was he in August 4th, in August 4th, 1951, he has enlisted as a, he enlisted as a Marine. Do we know if he was honorably discharged or was he medical? I could not find those records. The Marine records are harder for me to locate than the others. And there's usually like a veterans file where you can look and get more enlistment date mm -hmm. information, but he's not listed there probably because of his um, prison record. Yeah. Wow. They want to have spared him as a veteran. That is fascinating. Wow. Mm -hmm. Okay. Huh. So it makes you wonder, was there more to it? Mm -hmm. Did the, he has a head injury. Then he joins the Marines. Mm -hmm. Did something else happen? Well, they do teach you how to kill people in the Marines. Right. So if you went in then, with your brain scrambled, that could go bad places. I wish I knew when he got out. I wish I had more of those details because that would tell us more. But his life of crime didn't start where he's being arrested. Right. Until 1957. Yeah. That's so crazy. Well, I mean... Yeah, that's just so interesting. That's so interesting. Mm -hmm. Well, and as you know, I'm sure, but we didn't really mention earlier, he had written sort of an autobiography that was discovered yes. after his death and where he's basically saying it was a murder for hire and stuff like that. And it was concluded that none of that was true, that it was some sort of like right. fantasy novel. But it does kind of make you wonder, like, how was his brain operating after that accident mm -hmm. because he obviously wasn't going on all eight cylinders right you know it's crazy and so i do feel some sympathy for him i mean not as much as i feel for the clutter family um oh gosh no. but it just it makes you it just makes you think like if the medical people had been more advanced if the medics medicine had been more advanced you know right. if there had been you know some other way to deal with it because even in just the last 10 years We've gotten just so far, so far advanced with things involving your brain and traumatic brain injury. There really weren't MRIs back then, were there? No. I mean, it was literally like, if you don't die, I guess you're okay. Because the only thing that right? they could really do was cut your head open and take a look. and Or do an x-ray, which wouldn't tell you a whole lot. Yeah, no, because it's soft tissue. So it's just right. one of those things where it's like, unless it was like a tumor or something, there'd be... It would, I mean, it just, it was the fifties, you know? And I can only imagine he, he was put in jail a few times mm -hmm. before the final arrest that led him to the murder. And it does make me question, was he influenced by other people he was around? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And as we'll come to find out in the next episode, when we cover his partner, Perry Smith, and I just started on his tree, mm -hmm. that is a screwed up, there's some screwed up stuff going on in that family. Wow. And I can see Perry Smith drifting into crime quicker than I could see Richard Eugene mm -hmm. um, because of the difference in their family lives. Mm -hmm. And we'll get into it. I mean, I'm not very far on Perry Smith's tree and I'm always, I'm already going, 
And I had sent uh, Zelda a message going, I think this family is cursed. So you'll have to listen for that next wow. time. Wow. So, well, this has been fascinating, Denise. Hey. Oh my gosh. It's, I mean, it's always great, but this was particularly fascinating. Yeah, I thought it's been entertaining. And I think the next one will be even more interesting. Wow. And uh, I'll have to try out some new tools because Perry Edward Smith is part Native American or was, oh, I should say. Interesting. That is interesting. So, and I don't have a lot, a lot of experience with Native American um, research, but I'll do what I can. So. Wow. Good luck. Yeah. Thanks. So thank you everybody for joining us. Again, you can find us at murderousroots.com and there I will have some of the articles I mentioned here, plus extra photos and other information to supplement the podcast so you can see some more. And we have all our links to our social media there as well. But we are everywhere. We're on Instagram, Twitter, Facebook. You can find us. So thank you so much, Zelda. Thanks for having me. See you next week. Thank you so much for joining us on Murderous Roots, where murder and family meet. Don't forget to subscribe so you don't miss an episode, and please leave us a review. You can find more information on this episode and others at MurderousRoots.com. If you have a story you'd like to share with us, you can email us at podcast at MurderousRoots.com.